Thank you for praying with me, and I encourage you to continue to pray for them, for that church, and for that school. Um, continue to pray for our country. My goodness. It is, it is literally being torn at the seams before us. Um, and the, the turmoil that's around us is, is just evidence of that and the symptoms of that. And yet also pray for your church, pray for sovereign grace that the Lord would continue to give us wisdom uh, as we navigate these, these troubled waters uh, together. Now, but as we do, we will always look to God's word for our instruction. We will always look to God's word for our teaching and for our comfort. And so if you would turn to Exodus chapter 10, Exodus chapter 10, and we will begin reading there in just a few moments. Uh, as you know, on the, the church calendar, today is Palm Sunday, the beginning of the Passion Week, the, the leading up to, to Good Friday when Jesus was crucified on the cross to, uh, and then Sunday rose from the dead. Oh, that's the, that's the overcoming, right, that we just read about in John 16. He has overcome the, uh, the world. And next week, we're going to deal with um, the talk about the resurrection, but every Sunday that we gather is a, is a sign and a celebration of the resurrection of Christ. But this week, we're not going to look at Palm Sunday. We're going to read the Palm Sunday text at the end of our gathering, but this week, we're going to look to the eighth sign, the eighth plague in Exodus chapter 10, which, by the way, is all connected. It's all connected even to Palm Sunday, even to the cross, even to those things, because it's all part of the grand narrative of salvation history, how God has saved and delivered his people. So let's look at Exodus chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Read with me. The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dwelt dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. And so Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if, you do not ref for if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. And they shall cover your fa the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of your servants and all of the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then they turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters. We will go with our flocks and our herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, the Lord be with you. If ever I let your little ones go, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, 
Go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt and to the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and to eat every plant in the land, all that, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon them. In the land of all that day and all that night, when it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as has never been before, nor ever will be. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants and all, and all the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So we went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into the very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy inspired and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. So like I said again, so like I said last Sunday, again, these last three plagues, the hail, the locusts, next week darkness, or the next time will be darkness, was, is ramping up the intensity of the plagues, the judgment. And ultimately, it's going to culminate in the last one, in the last one of death that will be like none other. And you can hear, again, once again, the, the severity of the judgment of God, just like we did last week. You can hear the, the severity of, of the judgment and the, the damage that these judgments are causing. You can hear how, how weak now Pharaoh is getting, can't you? You can hear how weak Pharaoh's power is. You can hear in all the details that emerge with the Lord sharing his intent and his purposes behind the plagues. And like we saw in the seventh plague, the, the hailstorm to end all hailstorms, right? The, the trees were destroyed, the crops, the animals, even people who were, who were standing out in the fields, they were crushed by the hail because they didn't listen to the word of the Lord. And now this one comes. And this one with the locusts is going to be the one that finishes them off completely. That there will be nothing left of their nation. And like other acts of nature, or, or literally, like we like to say, literally acts of God in a biblical proportion, here comes another bug. Another bug upon the land of Egypt, a much bigger bug than gnats and flies. It is locusts. Now, I'm sure you all know what a locust is, right? They are, they are huge. For bugs, bugs they're huge. They're armored, they're strong, they're green, they're yellow, they're brown, they're black, and they're big grasshoppers. And these big grasshoppers can fly.
But the worst things about these kind of bugs is, is it's not their size, it's not their sound. If you've ever seen a locust just by themselves, it's pretty intimidating. If you ever tried to step on it, like if Kate tried to step on it, it would actually pick her up and fly her away. And <laughs> be like, get off me. You better come down on that thing like you mean it. But it's not their size, it's not the sound that they make, because it is a deafening sound. It is the sheer amount of destruction that they cause. Even just one of them, the amount of destruction that they can cause. But a full-scale full swarm, and this is, this is actually in scientific record, full-scale swarms of, of locusts can cover hundreds of square miles. And with every one, there is a hundred to 200 million locusts per square mile. And with each locust able to eat its body weight every single day, that is going to cause some serious damage. That adds up. Now we've probably, maybe only, I've only seen like one or two locusts at a time. But in other parts of the world, these swarms can come and they look like clouds descending upon them. You can check it out on YouTube. I did. I just had to see it for myself, and it is pretty, pretty wild. One of the things, though, that I, I have experienced is not locusts, but somewhat like it, is what is called the infamous Brood X of Cincinnati, Ohio. And when we moved up there in September of 2003, it was in 2004, late winter beginning into um, early spring, we began hearing this news about, and people talking in church about it, these things called cicadas. Now, I had never heard of a cicada. I mean, just never heard of them. Like, what, is, what are you talking about? What's a cicada? What's this bug? It's kind of like a locust, a lot smaller, somewhat the same, same kind of colors and stuff like that. And these people begin telling us about these cicadas that will come up out of the ground. And we're like, okay, a bug coming out of the ground. What's new? I'm from Florida. Every bug comes out of the ground. Right? But this was not like any other bug or particular year, because when I mentioned to you brood X, brood X is when all of the cicadas come out at one time to play during that season. And we're like, okay, it's spring. Bugs are supposed to come out. And they're like, no, you, you don't know. This happens only every 17 years. And I, look, and I mean, and I, we remember Christine and I were just kind of astounded. We were like, you mean when we're here? When we move up here, this is when all of the cicadas come up. And, and it was one of the wildest and craziest things I've ever seen in my life. Now, the city completely embraces it. And one of the big pizza chains, La Rosa's Pizzas, they even will put cicadas on your pizza and people just love it and stuff like that. People walk down the streets with like their beekeeper suit on with this net that goes all the way down the ground, umbrellas with it. I mean, these things are everywhere, big swarms of them everywhere. And cicadas, though, are not devastating. They don't destroy everything. They're just a huge nuisance, right? They make all kinds of crazy noise, and they get in trees. And, and, and literally, like, picture a tree, and they're in the tree, and it looks like the tree is in, like, this digital matrix form, the whole thing. Just, like, you feel like you're in the matrix. Something was wrong with it. They need to rewrite the program because the tree is just, like, moving in this crazy form. These things invade. They, they come out every 17 years. They, they make this insane loud noise. They lay their eggs, and then they go back into the ground, and they don't come back for another 17 years. And this happened again, actually, back in 2021. I wasn't there that time, thankfully. 
But what a crazy experience. But that's not the experience that the Egyptians had when it came to the locusts. They didn't look at the locusts and think, oh, that's a neat thing. We'll put it on our pizzas and we'll be okay. To me, it's a neat thing to look back and I can tell you about, but to them, this was a devastating event. It would be like talking about Hurricane Katrina and the devastation of such things. Apocalyptic destruction that would that would destroy everything. Anything that, if there was anything left, any green left, it would be totally destroyed. And what that means is, is this is a devastation that would last for decades. You don't, you don't just come back from this the next day, or the next season, or the next year. But this sign, this plague that God brings upon Egypt is, is very much just like the other plagues, isn't it? It has the same intent. It has the same purposes behind them. It's teaching us much about God and his sovereignty and his authority. And yet in it, I I have found there's three unique things. One of them actually is pretty standard from all of them. But the first two points that I have this morning, I think, is is coming out of this passage in a way that we have not seen in any of the others. And the first one of those is this, is that, I believe that in this text we are seeing here that this is our story. So just back to the seventh sign, the Lord told us his purposes in sending the plagues. He did that, and it's an amazing thing, right? To show you my power, to show you my glory, so that I would be proclaimed among the nations. And that's why there's this systematic destruction. Not just one, but there's ten. God could have delivered, you know, delivered his people with one knockout punch, as he says. But he sets ten. And see, again, here in this plague, in this plague here, we see another theological introduction. The Lord telling Moses what's going on and how to understand what's about to happen. And so, just to throw this in for you, the Bible is telling you here in these first two verses, God is telling us, how to interpret, and how to understand the rest of the passage. And when the Bible tells you how to understand the rest of the passage, then you better listen and interpret the passage as the Bible tells you how to interpret the passage so that you get it right. So looking at verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh. There's nothing new there, Ben. For I have hardened his heart. Nothing new there. And the heart of his servants. There's something new. That I may show these signs of mine among them. Okay, nothing new. Number verse 2, that you may tell in your hearing of your sons and your grandsons that I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. Now, verse 1 is simple. Again, we've, we've, we've heard these. We've heard the Lord say this to him. We understand. We understand what that means when he's hardening Pharaoh's heart. He's hardening Pharaoh's heart for his glory so that he may show his signs among his people. He's hardening now the hearts of his, of his, serv- of his servants, again, showing the absolute sovereignty of God. Now, what's interesting, again, I think we pointed this out weeks ago now, but what's interesting, again, is here that despite the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart, the Lord still commands Moses to do what? To go. Hey, I'm hardening his heart. He's going to say no. He's going to object to what I'm telling him to do, but I still want you to go. And what does that tell us about the sovereignty of God? That the sovereignty of God does not undercut our responsibility to be obedient. It's like the one 
who makes the argument, why should I pray if God has ordained everything already? Isn't it just going to happen anyway? Number one, that's a fatalistic argument, and we can deal with that later. But number two, we are commanded to pray. Pray without ceasing. That's a command to, to, to pray. The sovereignty of God, brothers and sisters, is not a cop-out from obedience, but rather it establishes our obedience. And so why did God harden Pharaoh's heart and his servants? Well, the text tells us. Here it is. He tells us that he may show what? These signs among them. He wants them to know him, that this is who he is. This is his power. This is the extent by which he will do and take to save and deliver his people. He's sovereign. He's putting his power on display for all the world to see. But verse 2, look at this. Why else is he doing it? So that you may tell in the hearing of your son and in your grandsons how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians. For the Israelites... For several chapters now, we've, we've literally heard nothing from them, haven't we? They've, they've just been spectators of these supernatural acts and watching God just, just come out, come at Egypt while, while they're just, um, in a sense, kind of basking in the light. And now precisely, the Lord is telling Moses to, to tell his son and to tell his grandson, but, but Moses is standing out here as the singular representative for all the people. Again, Moses is the, the mediator in a sense. He is, the, he is now the type of Christ, as Christ is our mediator. Christ is the better Moses. But the point that God wants, wants here, and what God is showing, what God is saying, is that he wants his children, the children of Israel, to tell their children, and then to tell their grandchildren about all the glorious things that God has done here to deliver his people. In fact, that's exactly what we see Moses telling the people to do in Deuteronomy chapter 6. What's easy about that is children love good stories. Children love good stories. Even, even today, with, with all the sources of entertainment literally at our fingertips 24 hours a day, when, when an adult has a good story to tell, children want to listen. I, I loved listening to stories from my grandparents. I shouldn't have put that line in there because I miss my grandparents. But my grandfather would tell me stories of a, being a child living in Holland. Or my other grandpa telling me how he used to live through the Depression, how he lived through the Depression in rural Texas. And it wasn't all bad. He didn't paint it as this terrible picture. He painted it as, hey, I was a kid. I was just having fun. Just living in rural Texas to a son of a son of a dirt farmer, whatever that is. Never could figure out what a dirt farmer is. How do you grow dirt? And the story of the Exodus is this epic story. It is an epic story. And it's a story that is so hard to beat, man. It is, you, you can't beat the Exodus in many ways. It's a story of about a people who were absolutely nothing and they become something great, don't they? 
They're slaves and God delivers them. In fact, the ideas and themes that we see throughout Exodus, redemption, deliverance, love, judgment, justice, a reluctance hero, a, a wicked tyrant, conflict, national triumph, happy endings, these, these, all these themes have been intertwined in stories throughout the centuries. Thousands and thousands of stories have been told and books have been written because of these themes. And in verse 2, the Lord is literally telling Moses, I love this, he's literally telling Tell your children how I made a mockery of Egypt. That's literally the language that he uses there. How I made a mockery of them. But it wasn't just for their entertainment for the children just to be wowed by. Certainly they will be. But the intent was for them to know what? To know the Lord. To know the the Lord. Because this story is unlike any others that are told. Because the Lord is like any other. And this story, the story of the Exodus, is what shapes the people of Israel, doesn't it? It shapes them in every single way. This is how God saved them in the Old Testament. This is their salvation story. It's, and it's true, and it's based on the, the facts and eyewitnesses. This is the story that would have defined them as a people when they would ask, who, who are we? Grandpa, who are we? How did we get here? Well, you are the people of the Lord who has delivered you out of the hands of of Egypt with his power and with his glory and he has now brought us into this promised land and as a people it's pretty important to know where you came from doesn't it isn't it that's one of the big problems in our country today we don't know where we came from we don't know who we are we don't know where we are where we come from so we don't know where we are going we don't know what our meaning is and this whole event defines them and gives them every one of those things every answers every one of those questions And just like all of us who have a story, that we have come to this point in our lives, generation after generation, there is a story to you. This is their story. This is the Jewish story. But brothers and sisters, we may not be Jews. We are not Jews. We are not Jews by name. We are not Jews by lineage. And we do not call ourselves Jews. But this is part of our story. Studying Exodus is like sitting at the feet of our great-great-great-grandfather. And he is telling us a piece by piece, detail by detail, of the great story of salvation and how we were saved. This is our story because the story of Jesus Christ comes out of the story of the Exodus. The gospel comes from the Exodus in a way. Moses delivered God's people out of slavery from Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. That was slaughtered as an atonement for God to pass over Israel. But it was Jesus Christ who is the lamb of God, whose blood by the new covenant would cover the sins of his people to whom he would call to be his own. Our story, which is based in this story, is also based on the facts of history. The virgin birth, the sinless life, his substitutionary atonement, the victorious resurrection from the dead. The exodus is a great story, but it all comes together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is what defines us as a people. It makes us, it shapes us, it is who we are as the church. Now certainly we we cling to the gospel more than we do to the exodus story, but the exodus story is part of the gospel. In a sense, it lays out the framework of the gospel. The gospel is greater. It tells us where we have come from. 
It has told you that you have, were enslaved to sin and deserving of eternal judgment. It tells us how we have been saved and transformed through, the, through our Savior and Deliverer, our Mediator, Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God. It tells us how we now live. And how do we live? We now live according to the righteousness of our Savior. It tells us where we are going and that we are going into the promised land. And most importantly, brothers and sisters, it tells us why. For the glory of God. And not to belabor the point, because we've probably been here doing this for a while, and we're only at verse 2. But this is our story. This is a part of our story. And if it's a part of our story, then we must tell our story. I love to tell the story. Let's tell the story. Let's tell the story of the, the sovereignty of God who saved his people. Let's tell it to our children. Let's tell it to our, our grandchildren, to the next generation of Sovereign Grace Church. The story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And secondly, not only is this our story, but we also see from this locust story is the importance or the necessity of humility. And so right after the hailstones stopped and they're melted, Moses came to Pharaoh again, and he repeats the same ultimatum. Again, nothing new here. But this time he says more. He kind of starts off with the question, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. I've been telling you, all for, all for a while now that the Lord's warning to Pharaoh of his judgment is mercy. He doesn't have to warn Pharaoh of anything. He's being merciful to him, and, and the whole point of that is for him to repent. And it's, and it's very simple. I mean, he, this is not a hard, complex issue. It is repent, turn, or be judged. It, it's, it's, not a, it's not a hard thing that's being set here. There's no if, ands, or buts. It's, it, it is all or, or nothing. Let his people go that they may serve him. And if you refuse, the, uh, refuse your land will be destroyed. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty simple. And, and then that's exactly what's at play here by saying that the locusts are going to come. And so in this question that Moses asked Pharaoh, how long are you, will you refuse to humble yourself before me? This is a good question. How long? How long are you going to continue in this insanity? And Pharaoh would not be humble. I mean, this is the eighth time he's come and said this to him. And Moses uses this new word, humble. It's interesting, back in chapter 1, that word is used. And it's used as a, in a, a very negative sense when Pharaoh uses hard labor to humble Israel, chapter 1, verse 11. But now it's Pharaoh who is being humbled. So this is the choice that is before him. And, and Moses is speaking pretty bold, by the way, to Pharaoh. This is his choice before him. And this is why the Lord sends Moses again and again to give him this choice to humble himself or be humiliated. And isn't this the same choice that every human being faces? Humility before the Lord, repentance and faith in Christ, or humiliation by judgment. 
The, the Bible it over and over teaches us about the necessity of humility. We, we could be here all day putting on screen, the screen all these verses about, uh, about pride and about humility, but I think this one really sums it up in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, the second half of it, and that is God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I mean, that, that sums up this, this whole idea, right? So this question that is presented to Pharaoh, <clears throat> how long will you refuse, or to put it another way, how long are you going to continue to love your sin? How long are you going to have to, how long am I going to have to oppose you in your pride? How long will you think that you are right and that your way is actually working out for you? And this is, again, the insanity of sin and the insanity of pride and how it clouds us in such a way that time and time and time again, the Lord is merciful, in a sense, by sending the gospel and the call to repent of our sins and the trust in Christ, and yet time and time again, the human heart spurns it and suppresses the truth. Charles Spurgeon, in a very Spurgeon-esque way, said this about this passage. He said, forget Pharaoh and only think of yourself. Let the Lord Jesus Christ himself with the thorn-crowned head and the pierced hand stand by your pew and looking right down into your soul, say in his matchless tone of music, the tone of the heart of love, how long will thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Church, we see here the necessity of humility to the authority of the Lord. And as James 4.10 says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. But just as we see in this passage and just like we've seen before, we see the awful reality once again that Pharaoh never humbles himself. And, and I mean, there are, there are moments. I think we can see even moments here, these moments of doubt, like he's actually doubting his pride. Should I really continue in this? especially when, when witnessing the, the devastation and the consequences of, of God's judgment time and time can come upon him and upon his nation. But even then, when the Lord is, gives mercy and respite from judgment, like he's, about to, he's going to do, as he does here, he got, uh, Moses prays and God relents. We still see Pharaoh is this example of just how dangerous and how dark that stubborn pride is, which is our excuse me, which is our sin nature. In verses 7 through 11, this, this whole thing, all these things just keep oozing out with his pride. Even when the servants, uh, his servants come to him, which by the way, God has hardened his hearts, that they come and they speak to him in a way they kind of slam Moses to say, how long are you going to let this guy be a snare to us? Right? They blame Moses for, for everything, but essentially they come to Pharaoh and they beg him, man, just at least let the men go. We, we got to have some kind of of, of rest here. We can't, we can't take this, especially the locust. So they know what's coming. And they understood on some level that they're done. And so Pharaoh turns to try to negotiate, doesn't he? He's like, well, call Moses back and let's, let's negotiate a way for them to, to, to go or to, to, to leave, and yet I still get something. Right? What does he negotiate? He says he negotiates for some people to be able to go, but some people stay. What is that? Is, is that obedience? Is that humility? Do we get to dictate our terms to the Lord? 
We do not get to tell him what we want and what we don't want. We don't get to tell the Lord what parts we're going to believe and what parts we're not going to believe or accept or not accept. That's not our place. And as Moses shows him, there's no compromise to the submission to the Lord. Humility is not a negotiated stalemate or a ceasefire. Humility, biblical humility, is an absolute surrender to the Lord. And brothers and sisters, for those you know, that if you have surrendered, that means you have faith, and you rely on the Lord for your salvation, then we know that we have not been deprived in what we have submitted, but we have been given everything in Jesus Christ. And we come to realize that giving up of our sin and giving up our pride and giving up our stubbornness was really nothing in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. We do not want to be You do not want to be in the place of Pharaoh. And as you can see here, it does not go well, and we're going to talk more about that. And that's the last point that we see in the eighth sign. Again and again, we see the sign of judgment. Locusts are showing us that once again, that judgment is real, and the judgment of the Lord is not good. The Lord delivers in his promises. He says, these locusts are coming, these locusts came. Moses stretches out his hand over Egypt, and symbolically, again, it's the Lord striking striking the land with his judgment. And the locusts came from the east wind, as the text tells us, that such a dense uh, swarm, this is verse 14, that such a dense swarm of locusts had never been seen before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. <clears throat> and we talked a little bit already of uh, uh, sort of the, the devastation, but this, this literally means mass starvation. This means that this is going to bring an instant famine into the land. Not because of weather, but because of the judgment of God. And without a doubt, this is coming. This is what the servants recognized. And so this takes us back to the, to the end of, of, of Genesis, doesn't it? It takes me back to the end of Genesis where, where Israel, the man, has to send his, his sons to Egypt for food. Why? Because there is famine in the land. There's no food in, 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 in the land. So, so Joseph has to se- or, uh, Israel has to send his sons into Egypt because God has blessed Joseph in such a way that he made Joseph a blessing to Egypt And now Egypt is now going to be a blessing to God's people. And so now Egypt is becoming, is providing for God's people. And now the Lord is doing what in Exodus 10? He is taking all of that blessing away. And as we saw last week, there's more. This this sign of judgment is a sign, I believe, of direct decreation. A direct decreation. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, it says there was no shrubs, there was no plants, there was no grasses in the fields of the earth. And why? Because God hadn't created them yet. God hadn't created them yet. And and, and, and particularly, they hadn't sprouted yet or grown yet because the Lord hasn't given them sustenance, hasn't given rain to the land for these plants to to grow. It also says in the text that the Lord hasn't, hasn't sent man to cultivate 
the ground. And that means there's, there was no life yet, nor were there the resources to sustain life, no food, which means there's, there's no one to grow the food. And for human life and for animal life or any kind of life, that's a problem. But as we see in Genesis chapter 2, that's not a problem for the Creator. Because very quickly, the Lord creates and He sends a mist that comes from the ground, the water, that waters the whole land, and then makes that, this place sustainable for life. We see in Genesis very, very, good, very well here that creation is, is good. Creation is, is God's mercy, and we see God's mercy in sustaining us through creation. We, we experience that today, that creation is sustaining life. But in Acts, or excuse me, I keep on saying Acts, Exodus, Exodus chapter 10, God is decreating. He's taking away, he's destroying life. He's taking away the, the, the sustainability. It's an absolute reversal of Genesis 6, uh, 2, 6. It's a reversal of the created order. Judgment, the judgment of God, is the reversal of the created order. And hear this, I, I think that this is what the Apostle Paul is teaching in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, Apostle Paul teaches many things, but those verses that I think we know very well, when it says that God gives them up in their lusts, dishonorable passions, Paul is making... The point there that God is judging them in these things. When they are exchanging the truth for a lie. The natural relations, right? We all know what we're talking about here. The natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And what we see, the Apostle Paul, the point he's making there, and I think what we're also seeing in, in Exodus chapter 10, in the decreation, is that judgment is a creation-reversing act. There's a decreation taking place. So listen, the ongoing sexual distortion and gender confusion in our age, brothers and sisters, is not the height or the zenith of their freedom and of their love and of their pride or the height of their movement. But brothers and sisters, it is the judgment of God. It is decreation. It is the judgment of God. And as Egypt is going to be left in a state of chaos and emptiness and torment, which is exactly where all sin leads, it never produces life. It always steals it. It always destroys it. It promises, like man, it promises everything. It promises you life and fulfillment and identity and all of this. It promises you love and success and all these. But it's a deceiver. From the mouth of the deceiver. The accuser. And sin is just like this locust that comes in and just consumes and destroys every green thing in our life. The goodness that God has given us, it comes in and devours it. Judgment is real, and, and yes, judgment is coming. We're going to read about that in a second. But brothers and sisters, I think what we're experiencing, and I'm not a prophet, I'm not some goofball on the internet. I'm not, well, I don't want to be that. 
I'm not one of those morons. But what we see in our culture is the judgment of God. It's decreation happening around us where humanity is literally unmaking themselves. And this is the judgment of God upon a humanity that has completely lost its way. Okay. Moving on from the points that would get me canceled. Well, never mind. Next one's definitely going to get me canceled. Judgment is bad, isn't it? It's so bad that even Pharaoh would see it. And he calls back Moses and he plays that whole game again of the confession. And I've sinned and we're this and that and man, pray this. And the Lord relents and he calls back the locusts. God's still sovereign. He's not played by this. His purposes of salvation for his people is still on. He still hardens Pharaoh's heart. But judgment is real. And again, brothers and sisters, this points to us that there is a final judgment that is coming. And as we saw last week, we read from, from Revelation 16, I believe, that, that this massive hail was coming. We see in Revelation chapter 9, verse 3, that locusts would come. Out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth nor any plant of the tree, but only the people of those who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given, any pow- given power to kill, to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. And during those days, men will seek death, but they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like a a, a woman's hair, and their teeth was like a lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions. And in their tails, they had the power to torment people for five months. That's horrendous. That's a horrendous judgment. But brothers and sisters and friends that are here this morning, as we, we finish up, I want to bring it back full circle. Because that humility, that pride, that judgment... This, too, was part of our story. We were once enslaved, not helplessly, but we were enslaved by our pride. We were enslaved by our arrogance and our stubbornness. And just like Pharaoh, we liked it. And because of our sin, we deserved and still deserve, in some sense, we deserve the judgment, the wrath, of God. We deserve eternal hell. And yet, brothers and sisters, the Bible so eloquently says to us, and for those who have ears to hear, will understand the joy when we hear these words. 
but God. That's our story. But God. But God being rich in mercy. Because of great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And all of God's people say,